Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host for tonight's show. I'm stationed in Kansas City, Missouri, where I'm an active genealogist. I'm also the president of the Midwest Afro-American Genealogical Interest Coalition. Our guest tonight is Joseph John Lauer. It's John. Professor. Hello? Yes, hi. It's John Lawler. John Lawler. Yes. Glad you could join us tonight. And you are a professor in Reading, Pennsylvania? That is correct. Okay. Tell our uh, listeners a little bit about yourself. Professor? Okay. Uh, I teach at a small community college in Pennsylvania, and I work as a volunteer at the National Archives in Washington uh, in their education uh, resource room. Uh, indeed, that's where I met uh, Leslie with there uh, on the uh, uh, 150th anniversary uh, commemorating the Emancipation Proclamation. That was back January 1st. And that's where we got started talking about me uh, participating uh, in the radio show, which I thought was very nice, uh, very thoughtful of her uh, that she would invite me to do so. Uh, I've been teaching, uh, oh boy, uh, since 1976, uh, but full-time since 1990, and I had several careers uh, between 1976 and 1990. I, I finally went full-time teaching in 90, and I'm still doing that today. Uh, primary areas are survey courses. Uh, that's what we do at community colleges. But usually, the first uh, U.S. history and, and some uh, world history, and maybe a specialty course. Uh, I have a, a civil rights course and a civil war course, and there's a couple others that I teach as well. Uh, but my bread and butter is off the survey, off the survey courses. That's where I get the most students. Uh, very active in research, very active with students uh, being involved in research, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance this evening to uh, talk about some of the student projects that have come down the pike of late. Okay. Well, let's start there. Tell us about those student projects. Um, that is, uh, involves your work with the uh, Pennsylvania Underground Railroad, does it? Yes, yes. The the uh, prime one, uh, several students have done done projects on uh, Underground Railroad work. Indeed, uh, several years ago, uh, in cooperation with uh, a fellow by the name of Dwayne Ellison at Montgomery Community College in, in uh, Rockville, Maryland, uh, we set up a joint project for our students on the Underground Railroad uh, so that we had a shared pool of sort of centralized resources for both sets of students to use. 
And that that worked out fairly nicely there for a while until Dwayne retired. Uh, and that will happen sometimes with these projects. Uh, but on our end, we've had some nice had some nice work uh, lately. Um, one I posted at a Underground Railroad website that we have uh, at the community college, and that was work by uh, uh, Mil- Mildred Gilliard. Uh, her husband uh, Frank is the executive director of the Sun. Central Pennsylvania African American Museum, which used to be an old AME church on North 10th Street in Reading, and itself was a uh, station on the Underground Railroad. Mildred has been involved with setting up bus tours to county area uh, known locations uh, for Underground Railroad activities, and she wrote a wonderful paper uh, discussing the the work that her that her uh, community organization does at CPAAM as well as her specific role and then some some really nice insights into the nature of the underground railroad in the local community so Mildred's Mildred's work is available online now and I had actually recommended to Leslie that Mildred would be a good person to talk to because uh, she's fascinating she and she and Frank they're 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 both very 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 interesting, interesting and dedicated people. Uh, that's been done. I've had students who have uh, taken a look at some of the work of uh, Zora, Neal, uh, Zora Neale Hurston and Richard Wright uh, in uh, a uh, history literature class that I have, and uh, we've actually uh, written up a uh, paper. A colleague of mine. Uh, uh, taking a look at some of the investigations, more current investigations that we've done into those two writers. Uh, as the historian of the two, uh, I was interested in the House on American Activities Committee, and he was interested more in the literary side of Richard Wright and, and Hurston. And when you put the two of us together, you get a pretty good product, we think. Yeah, excuse uh, me, Professor. Sure. You mentioned uh, Zora Neale Thurston, mm-hmm. or Hurston. Um why should, uh, why should we be studying her? And tell our listeners a little bit more about Zora Neale. Well, we should be studying her because of her uh, very strong work in the uh, in the 1920s, certainly as part of the uh, as part of the Harlem movement. But we should also take a look at her in juxtaposition to other writers because she has a certain joy of life that that pervades her work. She truly enjoyed her Florida study that she did as part of the uh, Federal Writers Project. Uh, she could have a fairly caustic side, too. Uh, she critiqued one of Richard Wright's works after he critiqued one of her works. And and uh, it could be a little bit inflammatory at times. But she has this wonderful sense of humanity that just, that just, just pervades her work. You can't read or listen to her. And some of her some of her uh, oral oral parts are available um, on the Library of Congress website, so you can actually hear her uh, sing some of the some of the folk songs and things that she studied in Florida. And she's just this she is just this very buoyant person. Uh, I, I'd love to meet her. <laughs> you know, she just okay. has this wonderful wonderful attitude. What about uh, any books that uh, she wrote? Could you? Well, know. well, yeah. She she was in the in the Federal Writers Project. She was very uh, very influential with the uh, uh, work 
um, on the, the Florida, they, they had state guides to different states. And her training was in uh, uh, really in anthropology. She had Franz Boas as her as her lead uh, professor at Columbia, and so she really knew her way around anthropology and cultural anthropology. And I'm most familiar with the WPA work. When the literature side, uh, their eyes are watching God. It's very powerful, very powerful piece of writing. Their eyes are watching God. Yeah, it's very it's a very powerful piece of writing, and and it too has. It too has a, a, a very positive, upbeat side to it. That in in uh, and, and that's what contrasts her so much with uh, with Richard Wright. Now Wright was also a writer in the Federal Writers Program uh, out of the Deep South that moved to Chicago uh, and um, had had uh, just. Uh, uh, horrible experiences growing up under Jim Crow system in the South. It seems that he was much more affected by his experience than Hurston was of growing up uh, in the uh, apartheid system of post-Civil War uh, South. So that's why I say that, that Hurston seems to be the more the more positive of the two. We're really moving ahead from my my original things dealing with okay uh, and let me uh let me interrupt there a minute sure. professor and i want all the callers to know we got some calls coming in already sure that we do see them and we'll be starting uh those calls here shortly i also like to remind our listeners um relative to uh zora neil thars uh hurston sunday january 26th to february 3rd there's going to be a celebration in her hometown of eatonville Florida, which is near uh, Orlando. Uh, now, moving on to our subject here. Sure. Um, can we go in and talk a little bit about Mr. Moses Horner? Yes, I, uh, I got your. And what I got that your involved. Yeah, I, I got your email uh, 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 just recently, uh, dealing with some uh, questions for uh, uh, dealing with that court case. Um, what really attracted my attention to that court case was uh, as part of a project with the National Archives in 1999, uh, they got a, a, a government grant from the Department of Education to put documents-based uh, lesson plans. And I, I have to apologize. I've really got this flu. So if I get a little scratchy, please bear with me. Uh, we will. Okay, good. I apologize to your listeners. Uh, but uh, in 1999, this project team was put together uh, by the National Archives to put some lessons out there. And I had literally stumbled across uh, these court cases. And as I started reading the documents for them, uh, I became intrigued, particularly with the contrast between a Henry Garnett case of 1850 and the Moses Honor case, which was 18, 1860. So there are 10 years difference between these two court cases. Um, the warrant for the, for the, in the court cases, uh, they're both out of 3rd District, Philadelphia. The warrants were virtually identical. The description changed a little bit, and the location to pick up the suspect had changed for the sheriff. But otherwise, they're very pro forma warrants. Do you have a, do you have a copy of that warrant in front of you? Uh, 
I can get to it pretty quickly. Okay. Yes, let me see here. You might read that a little portion of that warrant. Now, this was the warrant for capture or warrant for arrest? Yes, this is the warrant for arrest. Give our mm-hmm. listeners a feel on how that sounded back in 1850. Okay, let me let me pull that up here. Yeah, I lost it. Now there it is. Okay. There, um, the two court cases they span that ten-year period, and like I say, the warrants are the warrants are pretty much the same. Uh, the name's different, and the location's different, and the, and the critical difference is the certainly the date of the warrant. Uh, but then when you take a look at the first warrant, it's handwritten, uh, the warrant for uh, Henry Garnett. The uh, warrant for, uh, for uh, uh, Moses' honor, however, is pre-printed. It's a pre-printed form. And I asked my students to figure out, well, why, why the difference between these two? And the answer seems to be that it's a proliferation of cases. You can no longer have somebody writing out the uh, uh, warrants in in longhand anymore. Uh, So in printed form uh, from the uh, Moses Honor uh, warrant, it has uh, the President of the United States, and then it has United States of America, Eastern District of Pennsylvania, uh, to the Marshal, of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania greeting, and then it goes, whereas it has been legally charged before the Circuit Court of the United States and then for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, the Third Circuit, that, and then now it's fill in the name, that Moses, sometimes called Moses' honor, being held, uh, being a person held to service or labor in the state of, and then fill in the name of the state, Virginia, and owing such service or labor to a certain Charles uh, T. Butler uh, hath escaped therefrom into Eastern District, Pennsylvania. Now, in, in, uh, in pursuance of the acts of Congress of the United States, in this behalf made and provided, and by the force of authority vested in us, we do, by this warrant, empower and command you that you approach the said, and then handwritten, Moses, sometimes called Moses' honor. Uh, then there's a little bit of, of uh, distortion on the page, and then it reads, uh, 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 if he be uh, found uh, within the district aforesaid, uh, uh, that you uh, cause him to be brought forthwith before the, just, uh, the judges, of said court at Philadelphia, and have you then and there uh, this writ. So he's supposed to bring his his warrant with him uh, when he brings uh, goes out and arrests um, more honor. This, now, the, the, how, did the, this, how did this warrant relate uh, to the original Fugitive Slave Law of 1792 compared to the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850? The uh, the biggest change uh, that I can tell from the 1850 law is that uh, according to the 18, uh, 1850 law, um, first individuals could be uh, uh, put on a posse, irrespective of their 
position or their feelings with regard to runaway slaves. And secondly, that the uh, the uh, the sheriff or the the warrant server uh, would be paid more if the individual was held over. Uh, the whole system of justice was starting to skew, and you can kind of see it in this document. Um, the, the the very last piece of this document uh, for the warrant uh, reads, uh, Witness the Honorable Roger B. Taney, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States at Philadelphia, this 21st day of March, uh, A.D. 1860, uh, and the 84th year of the independence of the United States. And then it's signed by the clerk of the court. But they actually got the, the signature of of the Chief Justice, and this is the same Chief Justice who presided over the Dred Scott case. And just to have him in the same, you know, collection of flow mm-hmm. of ideas is, is, to me, an interesting phenomenon. Now, in the, in the first case, the Garnett case, uh, he was released. Uh, the, the, uh, a uh, decision of the court was that the the affidavits were without merit and that was insufficient proof. Virtually the same affidavits are presented in the second case, but in this case, Moses Honor is remanded back into slavery, handed over to Butler. And and Butler was the slave owner? Butler was the slave owner, yeah. Charles Butler was the slave owner. Um, I, there's a there's a codicil that I haven't really checked into very very far, but that I was aware of, and that there was an attempt by an individual, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, there was an attempt by an individual to uh, break him free. Uh, the individual's name. Well, I actually have it here someplace. Uh, the individual's name was Jeremiah Buck, and Jeremiah Buck tried to um, ambush, if you will. Before you uh, before you go there, Professor, sure. I want to move into that or go back to the 1850 law and the 13th Amendment, um, which abolished slavery except by punishable for a crime. Uh-huh. And that brought on the uh, industrial complex that we see in the prison system today. Mm-hmm. Um want our listeners to be aware of that. And okay, go ahead. You were saying Well well the only I guess the only thing I was saying out of that was that there was an attempt made uh to free him after his conviction that to when you get to eighteen sixty uh, motions are running tremendously high, uh, and that would be that would have been in March of 1860. So uh, you're um, a, a bit out, um, you know, a couple months past John Brown's raid, and the, the reaction from Brown's raid. Uh, you're um, uh, a couple of uh, months ahead of the presidential election and the heated Baltimore Convention of the Democrats that will take place. So all this is taking place within a real maelstrom of political and social, and even with the uh, uh, 
enduring economic recession that was taking place at the time. It's, it really is a period of total unrest uh, when this the context in which this case uh, takes place. And getting back to that case and back to the 1850 Slave Act law and the fact mm-hmm. that money was added into the system in terms that there were rewards put out and um, again as I mentioned brought about what we see today in the um, mass incarceration what's your take on that have you given any thought to that well yeah there's there's a a, a book out uh, called slavery by another name and I, yeah. just put, I just put it down there's another one out by Douglas uh, Blackman yeah, is Douglas the author Blackman. of that book yeah Douglas Blackman's book and there's also the book out by uh uh, Kadata Williams called They Left Great Marks on Me. And both of those tell the story of if slavery is eliminated through legal means at the national level, constitutionally by the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, there were attempts at reordering slave labor based upon tenant farming, uh, vagrancy laws, uh, chain gangs, and, and you know, actual, actual renting out of prison gangs to work on, to work crops and work fields and, and work in industry and the like. And to me, it, it's, it's the same, it's the same condition. It's slavery. Mm-hmm. Slavery is, is slavery is slavery. Now, some people like James Hicks, we have good record of his of his um, re- response and his fight uh, for his rights, based upon testimony that he made uh, to the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau held hearings through the South uh, to find now, out the what the Freedmen's Bureau came into existence when. Uh, well, that, that's a, that's Oliver O. Howard, and it comes into play. Uh, Howard University fame. Uh, that comes into play in uh, towards the end of the Civil War. It's an 1865 uh, uh, development, and it provided for refugee relief, war relief, irrespective of race. In fact, there's evidence that that as many white clients were assisted, refugees were assisted. Uh, as as uh, um, you know, former slaves being assisted, uh, they did have uh, a hand in some of the land re- redistribution that took place early in Reconstruction. But they're most famous for putting together um, the uh, uh, schools uh, throughout the South to try to uh, provide uh, some level of literacy and mathematical competencies, uh, so that. You know, being free without being able to read and write is is a rather shallow, shallow level yeah. of freedom. It was and, pretty tragic, and, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there, there was an article in the New York Times about two years ago that talked about the enduring legacy of that, and and uh, it it certainly is almost self-evident. Unfortunately, it really is. And you can see it in a lot of the education system in the South. Yet, uh, there, in the North, 
and, yeah, and in areas, and yeah, yeah, and in areas of the north. Although, though we do see some areas that are really that are really striving. I mean, I meet with teachers at the National Archives. They come in from Washington D.C. Uh, to to help their students with National History Day projects, and I'm very encouraged by by some of these things that I've seen uh, taking place in 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 uh, areas that are really struggling and struggling budget wise now too. Uh, we've lost. Let me interrupt right there, uh, sure, Professor. Sure. Uh, you mentioned um, the film or the book. Slavery by a mother, Another Name. Mm-hmm. I'd like to remind our listeners that the Guest of Freedom will be presenting a screening of Slavery by Another Name with filmmaker Sam Pollard. That's going to occur on February the 16th, which is a Saturday in New York City at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Center, which was formerly known as the Audubon Theater where Malcolm X was assassinated. Now, moving back towards our subject here, and speaking of Pennsylvania, and and you and I exchanged information earlier uh, in reference to Christina, Pennsylvania, which seemed to be a hotbed for fugitive slaves to arrive there, and a number of attempts were made to um, rescue or at least take back into slavery by slave masters. Have you uh, been able to find out any more about uh, Christina, uh, Pennsylvania? Well, I've had yeah, I've actually had some students who have done some uh, research in in uh, past years on the topic, but I myself have not delved into it very much. Uh, the difference between Lancaster County, which is due south of Berks County. And it, Lancaster County is the county that Thaddeus Stevens came from. That can give you an idea on how resistant that area would be to slavery if they elected Thaddeus Stevens so frequently uh, to uh, to Congress. Uh, they were very, very strong. Uh, there's a, a lot of what you call pietist. Um, could you uh, could you explain? Could you explain to our audience who Thaddeus Stevens was? Okay. And uh, uh, what would uh, what do you think? And along with that, what was the reaction in general in the North to the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850? Well, there's a there's a gradual morphing. Let's take the last question first, and then that that'll okay. put a context around Thaddeus Stevens. There's a gradual morphing of attitude that takes place from from general apathy uh, towards the plight of runaways or or slavery in the North, um, following the gradual emancipation legislation that came out of the state of Pennsylvania in 1780. That legislation was sort of riding on the wave of, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And how can you fight a revolution for equality and still maintain a system of slavery in your commonwealth? So in Pennsylvania, uh, they did a gradual process of emancipation. Uh, No slaves were uh, freed immediately by the law, 
but there were benchmarks, timelines. And at some point, an individual or an individual's child or an individual's grandchild is no longer going to be in chains. And many of the other northern states took hold of this as well. There's still a very, very strong thread in the north of those who, they may have opposed slavery, but they didn't, they weren't interested in anything to do with equality. Um, that leads us to Thaddeus Stevens as a representative from Lancaster who did indeed believe in equality of people, not just the abolition of slavery. And he was a, he was a Republican, uh, leader, in the, uh, leader in the Congress, leader in the House, and was very influential uh, on the uh, Committee for the War, as well as then um, trying to push for a much stronger uh, or much more severe uh, system of Reconstruction than, than uh, Lincoln had uh, advocated. Uh, Lincoln's position was that if 10% of the electorate of the former rebel colonies took an oath of allegiance, then that state could organize itself and submit a state constitution for re readmission back into the union. Stevens said, "No, it has to be it has to be 50 percent, and there had to be a sign-off before readmission of the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments before that reconstruction could take place." So he's he's much further. Uh, along than even than even Lincoln was. Lincoln was the ultimate politician. Uh, Stevens, Thaddeus Stevens, was much more of a firebrand for uh, for the end of all aspects of slavery. Um, that separates him significantly from the representative from Berks County, the county that I'm in. That individual voted against. Uh, the uh, Conscription Act voted against the uh, 13th Amendment, voted against the 14th and the 15th. Uh, he, was a, he was a Democrat who was more akin to a politician in Richmond than to anything else you'd find in this, in this area. Uh, and Richmond, Pennsylvania? No, Richmond, Virginia. He was a, okay. he was a real strong arch Democrat, and he wanted no parts of ending slavery. Period. Do you recall his name? Yes, his name was Sydenham L. Nathan E. L. T. H. A. N. A. N. L. Nathan Ancona A. N. C. O. N. A. Okay. And he's reelected over and over during the war. And Lincoln loses dramatically in Berks County uh, in the general in the general presidential election in '64. Uh, he also didn't carry the he also did not carry the county uh, Berks County in the uh, election of 1860 either, for that matter. Uh, although the state uh, he did carry he did carry the state, which shows you this. Um, you know, your your question was, well, what was the reaction in the North? It's it's very um, erratic. It, it, it's or unpredictable. Some communities passed um, what were called personal freedom laws. Uh, Massachusetts, for instance, had a personal freedom law, which went directly against the Fugitive Slave Act. Directly against. Do you it. think? Do you think that? Uh Fugitive Slave Act was 
Is that what ignited the Civil War? Uh, seems like a lot of rescues and riots erupted about that time, uh, and a lot of which required the assistance of the federal government. So how large a role do you think that played into setting the groundwork and the ignition of the Civil War? Well, well, it certainly formed attitudes, North and South, to coalesce. And those in the South who were opposed to slavery um, get very quiet and they have to go underground. Because you have to recall that the Underground Railroad starts in the South, and a lot of Southerners help people escape. But those people kept very, very, very low profiles. Uh, no more petitions, no more letters to state legislatures, none of that. Uh, all, all very, very much underground. Uh, except when you get into certain areas like the western part of Virginia, which later becomes West Virginia, um, the eastern part of Tennessee in the hill country. Um, there was still a lot of unionists in there, and they could be fairly outspoken. But otherwise, in the big cities like Charleston and Richmond, Savannah, um, that, that uh, uh, kind of overt resistance to slavery or opposition to slavery it withers really with Nat Turner's revolt. And then John Brown throws it, throws it deep into silence in the South. You didn't dare raise a voice in the South uh, after Brown's raid. It's, it's a series of, of uh, increasingly forceful events that occur, none of which would have occurred if slavery didn't exist. So I know I hear some things from students every now and again, or I see some things on the blogs that say, well, it was really over states' rights, the Civil War. Okay. No, no, it wasn't. What, what about uh, Cassius Marcellus Clay there in Kentucky? Uh, was he for uh, uh, immediate emancipation? Well, the... the uh, the Kentucky, the Kentucky group that goes for um, Bell, for John Bell in the election of 1860, is, uh, is, is under the banner of constitutional union. And you have to look at Kentucky that way, I think, because it's so split between, even at the family level. Um, Bell did very well in the 60 election in Kentucky, uh, did very well in Virginia, uh, pretty good in, in Maryland. Any place that is sort of the borderline areas between uh, the Ohio River, the south of the Ohio River, the Kentucky area, uh, south of the Ohio River to the coast, um, I think those people recognize that if war broke out, the place that would be ravaged by war, would be their turf, their lands in there. And sure enough, when you take a look at a map of Civil War battles, a tremendous number of battles take place in the states that were constitutional union states that went for Bell in that 60 election. Now, whether whether uh, 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 Clay, you know, I'm not quite sure. I can't answer that with any great confidence for you. Okay. Well, um, I think you're right on in terms of the uh, family split along those lines there in Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, Marcellus Clay was a cousin to Henry Clay, who was a writer of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law. Hmm. Um, were you um, are you aware of any um, any incidents of resistance? Uh, 
of slave uh, catchers by abolitionists, particularly there in uh, Pennsylvania? I don't know. To, well, I know the Christiana was that was uh, uh, a, a, an attack. Um, it's a curious. It's a really curious case, but it's an attack against the Maryland slave owner and his hirelings uh, who were out to recapture slaves that that had escaped from him. And he knew, he had intel. There were spies in the North who reported things to, to yeah, and there were bounty hunters, too, for that matter. You got a reward uh, for the capture uh, of a uh, slave and handing, uh, handing well, they weren't called slaves, they were fugitives from labor. They used the euphemism. Fugitives from labor, yes. Fugi- they, yeah, it's a euphemism, but it means a slave. And um, uh, when he attempted to uh, retrieve his slaves from Pennsylvania, uh, that's when he ran into, into a violent uh, clash uh, in uh, in uh, the Christiana, and that's in Lancaster County. That's down in Thaddeus Stevens turf down there. Um, the the initially there were a number of individuals who were charged with treason, and gradually the number of individuals in the charges begin to disintegrate, begin to drop. Um, I think eventually they all got knocked down to something on the order of disturbing the peace, and then that was thrown out for one of for one of testimony. So none of the none of the uh, quote rioters unquote of of uh, Lancaster in that case uh, were ever put in jail for their for their activities. That in itself may have generated a backlash in slaveholding areas, certainly in Maryland and Virginia, in any place where there was a reasonable possibility for a slave to escape into uh, into Pennsylvania. Um, Lancaster County, there's a, a college in Lancaster County called Millersville. And Millersville has done a study of the Underground Railroad in in uh, York County, Lancaster County, and those are southern tier counties. They border on the Mason-Dixon line. And so they would be very active counties. And, of course, uh, the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia with William Still, uh, that was another very uh, fertile area. Now, I know of I know of cases where there were bounty hunters in, in the Reading area and in Quitstown area, areas around where I live here in Berks County, uh, but they were not interfered with in in uh, their attempts to uh, uh, capture people. They weren't particularly successful in court here. That juries tended to dismiss, or judges tended to dismiss uh, these cases. Uh, I have one case from 1806 that a student found, um, in which case two individuals were... Uh, released for want of evidence, no one appeared before them to uh, before the judge uh, to uh, make a claim against them, and so they were they were released. And then Milliard Gilliard, uh, Mildred Gilliard, in her paper, talked about an individual uh, by the name of Turner, uh, who was actually released uh, by the courts and continued on to Canada. 
and then wrote a letter back to the church, the AME Church in Reading, uh, thanking them for, for their support. It's really an interesting little section in her paper. And like I say, that is available uh, online uh, at the uh, racc.edu uh, Underground Railroad website. Um, okay. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Professor, um, speaking of the fugitive slave law, you see any parallels between activity that we see today, such as the stop and frisk, um, the stand, stand your ground law, the Arizona immigration laws? See any contrast there, any parallels to the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act? Depressingly so. Oh. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah, and I see it in in the rhetoric. I see it in in things that you know some of the some of the Civil War feeds that you get, uh, some of the just remarkable racism that you figure in 2013. You know, it's almost it's it's just totally insane to see some of these attitudes and to see in Arizona to see um even teaching of of uh, cultural courses in the colleges and 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 high schools being having that turned off that it's no longer allowed it just fosters this attitude of disgust for your neighbor for for the the people you work with for the people you shop with for the people that you associate with that that some group is being treated totally unfairly it just is it just is uh it's it's appalling it now that's how i read it uh yeah, i can't imagine it's amazing that. it's yeah. amazing that a country of immigrants would come down with so much hate on immigrants yeah, which is I, really a, a very strange phenomenon yeah, um really what about is. any activity by john brown in uh, the area of Pennsylvania, well, John Brown had a he had a tannery in Pennsylvania for a while, and um, that didn't work out for him very well. When when he was planning his raid into uh, Harpers Ferry, Virginia, um, he had a um, building in uh, Chambersburg, downtown Chambersburg, uh, that was kind of a collection point. Uh, for the people who were going to assist him in his attack. Um, they met there, and then they moved from, from Chambersburg to um, the Kennedy Farmhouse, uh, which is not too far from Harper's Ferry. It's in, it's in, it's in uh, Maryland, however. And then they crossed over from Maryland into... Uh, into Virginia uh, for the for the famous raid, um, so there are there are uh, indeed connections, and it's alleged that Jubal uh, Jubal Early um, he invaded Pennsylvania twice during the Civil War um, as a as sort of an independent cavalry expedition uh, that came north uh, once in in 1862. And his stop was Chambersburg, and it's alleged that he was really there uh, for payback for John Brown. And then in 1864, uh, he attacked again 
Uh, and this time, in, in 1864, he burnt the town to the ground. In response to that is when Grant assigned Philip Sheridan to take the Shenandoah Valley and lay waste to it. And so that was a payback, was the Shenandoah Valley. There would be no more... There would be no more invasions of northern areas through the Shenandoah Valley, Gettysburg, Antietam. Uh, they had all been they had all been through the Shenandoah. That was not going to happen again. But so so Brown's connection to Pennsylvania may have been part of the part of the retribution. Now I had recently learned that uh, when John Brown's body was being brought home from uh, from his execution, uh, the uh, wagon with his wife and the escort that was taking his body to Philadelphia was shot at uh, and who knows by whom uh, but I, I was not aware of that but as his funeral procession moves through Pennsylvania there's tremendous reaction he becomes the martyr the, the John Brown's body is molded in the grave martyr and I guess on his way way from Philly up to New York, there were thousands who paid respect to that funeral that funeral uh, uh, going by, uh, and and that's one of those another one of those points where if you were on the fence, you're starting to be pushed off the fence, both north and south. Those who are in favor of slavery, they'll tighten up. They'll start raising defense organizations in their communities, and they'll start putting paramilitary outfits together, and they'll 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 much more closely patrol to prevent nighttime escapes of slaves, and it really it really ramps up it really ramps up the reaction. I think uh, in the north, it has that different backlash, and that is you know. Here was a guy who. Let me interrupt a moment, sure. uh, Professor. Yeah. I want to let our listeners know that we're going to open up the lines. Okay. If they want to listen, they can continue. If they have an, if they have a question, we'll take it. All right. And, sure. Uh, but we'll go ahead and continue our conversation. Uh, I want our, our listeners to know the lines are open. Um, well, I think I think I had hit I think I hit my punctuation point there that that both sides were were galvanizing coming out of these series of events starting with the with the war with Mexico really starting up then and the and the 1850 compromise that's trying to resolve those problems that had come out of the war with Mexico and then you had certain hardcore areas in the north places like places like Concord Massachusetts Excuse me professor mm-hmm. um, we have a call from area code 562 go ahead Go ahead, caller. Area code five six two, are you there? Go ahead and ask your question, caller. Okay, goodbye. Uh apparently uh apparently we lost them. Yeah. Yeah. If there's another one that's fine, you know, don't feel no it's no problem stopping me. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, we were talking about uh, events that galvanized uh, individuals. We just had a an incident there in Newton, Connecticut, that seems to have galvanized uh, 
our community again, and that is the issue over guns, gun control, Second Amendment rights uh, versus uh, the rights for babies to be able to go to school yeah. and not uh, fear any harm will be brought to them uh, by someone with a uh, semi-automatic assault rifle with, what, banana clips that hold 50, 60 rounds of ammunition. Uh, what's your take on that situation around uh, those who would want to uh, forestall uh, any legislation to deal with any kind of gun legislation uh, and that are standing on their Second Amendment right? Of course, my take on it, if you're standing on your Second Amendment right and want to on an assault rifle, you should join your local National Guard. Oh, yeah. What's your take on it? Yeah, I've, I've maintained that all along in this argument. If you look at the NRA building in Washington, they only have the second half of the Second Amendment engraved on the building. They don't have that for purposes of a well-ordered militia. They don't have that part. That was the whole included. purpose of the Second Amendment, right? And, and exactly. That was that was indeed the purpose. And we saw what happened uh, after that amendment was approved, shortly after the amendment was approved, in fact, uh, farmers in western Pennsylvania decided they could resort to violence against tax collectors who were collecting a, a whiskey excise tax. It was known as the Whiskey Rebellion, and I think it's 1795. George Washington pulled together the militia and sent them west under Alexander Hamilton, about 10,000 strong. And they totally, totally destroyed that whiskey rebellion. So those who would argue that the whiskey rebellioners were right don't understand the function of a militia as a formal adjunct military unit of the state. As it was in the colonial period, they were going to maintain that. There was, there's nothing about hunting. There's nothing about stand your ground. There's none of that stuff in the Constitution, whatever. That's all been plowed in after the fact through judicial decisions. Uh, and it's ironic to me that those who stand as the constitutional purists, the literalists, haven't read the darn thing, you know. <laughs> so, so I am, I am, I am squarely, uh, you know. And I, I think I even have some colleagues who are saying, you know, well, we got to figure out how to arm ourselves. Well, does that mean in class if some student goes for a cell phone in the purse, you shoot that student? Because if you don't, they might come up shooting at you. Is that the kind exactly. of classroom? Is that the kind of classroom you want? Now we've seen a case where armed guards had to take students to school, and it wasn't very pretty. And that was in Little Rock, Arkansas. Do we want to see that happening all over the country? Oh, I don't think so. I really don't. So I get a little bit passionate on that subject. Because, uh, first of all, the mechanism isn't there to make it work. There's no way that you can have armed guards in every hallway, every bathroom, every bus, it just isn't going to happen. If somebody wants to do something that destructive and that disgusting, they'll find a way to do it. If they can, if they can get close enough to Ronald Reagan to shoot him down and his press secretary, 
If they can get close mm-hmm. enough to John Kennedy and shoot him down, if they can get close enough to Dr. King and shoot him down, or Bobby Kennedy, if they can get close enough to those people to shoot them down, if they really want to take out a third grader someplace, they'll more than be easy to do that. It's just stupid, this stuff that we hear. Oh, I'm getting a little on a rant. <laughs> you no, you're me. okay. Um, you yeah, they're beginning up. to put uh, in several school districts, uh, they're beginning to arm teachers. You have armed uh, security <laughs> resource officers in high schools. Um, and, you know, the guns are visible. I can't imagine uh, teachers, I don't know where I would be today if teachers had guns when I was in grade school. Wow, that's just uh, with my behavior, they had more than that paddle that they had. You know? <laughs> yeah, <me too. laughs> I'd be, I'd yeah. be in serious trouble. And I think uh, a lot of people now would turn to homeschooling. But um, what's your take on that? I, I, I would think that education is about the individual, and it's also about community. Yeah. And if we go into homeschooling, then kids learn; they lose the sense of socialization, they lose the sense of community, etc. What would be your take on that? Well, that was actually a tactic that was used uh, immediately after the Brown v. Board case in the South, as many communities scrambled to have segregation by another name. So you have slavery by another name, and now you have segregation by another name. So so uh, there could be another book coming out on that. And James Lowen, uh, who wrote Lies My Teacher, taught me has been looking at these kinds of issues. Uh, even the, the notion of sundown towns, and that still exists in this day and age. But the, the vouchering and the charters and the, the homeschooling is all designed as, as segregation through another route. And you're, mm-hmm. I, I believe that's, I do, I do believe, sincerely believe that that socialization process of school is essential to growth. How can you have compassion, and how can you have understanding? Oh, others, I like that word. Yeah. Others would compassion. argue. Well, others would argue that well, my kid won't be bullied. Well, that's that is a problem, and there are solutions to that. But don't run away from the problem. Solve the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and and to me, a lot of that is just. There's there's just lack of courage to face to confront. You know, a you mentioned uh, the phrase segregation by another name. Mm-hmm. Have you read the book? And please excuse me, I, I can't remember the author's name right now. But the name of the book is "Some of My Best Friends Are Black." No, I haven't read that. Have you heard no. of that book? No, I haven't. No. Which talks about uh, uh, desegregation and uses. Uh, uh, three models, and Kansas City is the focus of one of those in a city, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and I believe a community in Florida. Uh, professor, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, um, how would they do that? Do you have any uh, any websites, any activities coming up uh, um, to be involved in or open to the public? I Maybe on Facebook, Twitter. Well, I, I I do respond well to email, and it's okay. J J Lawler L A W L O R, just J Lawler all lowercase together, at r a c c. dot edu. I I just okay, finished a, just finished a conference up in Cambridge 
uh, in November um, at the Community College Humanities Association. Uh, uh, this colleague of mine who who has been doing a lot of joint research with me over the years, uh, uh, he and I have uh, a history literature uh, blended course that we do, and a lot of our research is really being driven by course interests that deal with the combination, the blending of history and literature uh, as a as a educational force. And we're we're quite pleased with some of the things we've we've put together. We found uh, one example of something that we found was we found a letter to uh, President Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, when he was done his presidency, he was doing a lot of fundraising for uh, the uh, African-American colleges in the South. And and he, he issued this offer for African-American scholars to apply for an $800 scholarship, for any scholar to apply. Uh, but especially he was hoping that there would be an African-American scholar who would apply for this $800 scholarship. And W.E.B. Du Bois applied, and we have his letter. And students like that, because here's a letter from a man who is looking to get a scholarship, and they, they appreciate the, the dilemma that a, that a student is in. But his list of credentials out of Harvard is absolutely Founding the people who signed in support, and at the very end of he he did a, a cut and paste. He cut out the newspaper article that Hayes had announced the scholarship, and he sent he sent that along with he pasted that to his letter. And at the very end of his letter, he wrote, "I apologize if I've you know used your time inappropriately. If I if I am not qualified." And then signed in his very strong hand, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois. Well, he got the scholarship, and that's what got him through Heidelberg. And so we have these little gems like that that we've been researching over the years, and we have just scads of that stuff. You know. Now you mentioned you're doing some work at the National Archives. Can that's our right. listeners reach you there? Or no, I don't have a mail. I'm a volunteer there. I go down once a month, and then I do work, uh, research work. Now, that's on my own. That's on my own dime and everything. So it's a volunteering for that. Oh, okay. But just as a researcher, I use their, I use their records uh, for uh, my research. Um, the, the most recent thing we've been looking at is a hurricane in 1935 in Florida and how it destroyed a number of veterans' camps from the Bonus Army. These are World War I veterans who were jobless, who were put in, like, CCC camps in Florida. A hurricane came through, and there was plenty of warning, but the the veterans weren't evacuated. And it led Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, to write a very scathing article. Well, this friend of mine and I, this is a history-lit item, so we've been investigating... Who knew what went about this hurricane? And it's been very engaging, mm-hmm. very nice research. So that's tell our, our listeners. Mm-hmm. Tell our listeners uh, how they can use the National Archives there in D.C. and um, any tips for our listeners. And when you finish up with that, we'll sure. uh, be signing off. Well, the 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 very first thing to do is is uh, recognize that the National Archives is where the federal government holds permanently valuable. Uh, documents and preserves them and makes them accessible to the public. And 
they are very, 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 very loose with the idea of what's permanently valuable. They'll keep meal vouchers. I mean, they keep all kinds of really, really, really small items. Uh, the the first way to go about doing the research there is through their website, and that's at www.archives.gov. And they have a number of research tools there that will help you find information out about whether or not they would have they might have something in their holdings. They have about half a million items available online out of a little over ten billion items. So half a million out of ten billion gives you an idea. That's why a lot of research has to take place on their premises. Uh, down in uh, down in, in Washington and in College Park, Maryland, or out there at the Eisenhower Center in Kansas, uh, you know, you there's all kinds of of National Archives facilities around the country, and each of those yeah. have different records. So I would use I the website I, first. Yeah, and I think our listeners will find that there there are branches all across the United States. We have yeah. a branch here in Kansas City actually, that have this place. Dr. Uh, Professor Lawler, mm-hmm. uh, certainly appreciate your spending time with us, uh, special, especially under the conditions of that flu coming on. Oh, I'll tell you. I can hear it in your voice. Uh, but I really appreciate uh, your hanging in there with us, and I appreciate the uh, valuable information uh, that you've presented. I've certainly learned a lot. And I want to remind our listeners that we will return uh, this Thursday evening at 8 p.m. to uh, continue our reading of the book, The Black Abolitionist, by Benjamin Quarles. Excellent book. So please, yeah, please tune in for that. Um, and as you heard the professor say, it's an excellent book. And um, we'll continue our involvement with that book. Uh, again, thank you again, Professor. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Preston Washington. Uh, we're through for the day, and I want to say good night to you, pro- uh, Professor, and good night to our listeners. Well, thank you very good night, much. Good night, everybody. Good night. Okay. Get well. <laughs>